Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In her new book, Gloria J. Romero, the first woman to serve as majority leader in the California Senate, looks into the double standards in the workplace that put successful women in a double bind. Just Not That Likeable, The Price All Women Pay for Gender Bias is published by Post Hill Press, and it brings Gloria Romero to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. You make it clear that this is not just theoretical, that you've drawn upon your own experiences in, in writing this book, not, not just in politics, but also from your work as a psychologist. Absolutely. I've seen this in my own career, also as a university professor, where when I used to teach gender studies courses, I would actually lecture on this. And then I began to realize that these were issues that were affecting me in my own professional career, as well as the political arena. You discuss a number of court decisions, the Newsweek case in 1970 and the landmark Supreme Court Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins ruling in 1989 that employers could no longer evaluate employees based on stereotypes uh, or have uh, unequal pay for equal work. That's been outlawed. Anti-discrimination laws have become common. Uh, since then, unequal pay for equal work has uh, uh, still uh, has been a problem. So um, what happened? Did people just ignoring all of those, the court decisions and the new laws? Well, it's an interesting story. And I think when we take a look at discrimination on the basis of sex, for example, there are the more overt uh, blatant, sort of in-your-face uh, you know, cases that deal with unequal pay for the same work or for issues of sexual harassment, for example. But the case that Ann Hopkins brought and the one that I really focus on in my book are really the types, more subtle types of discrimination that even though this was outlawed in 1989 by a case that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court by Ann Hopkins, we still find lurking in workplaces and it becomes especially important as women increasingly make their way into the executive leadership roles and you know the the the, the coveted c-suites of their own organizations so they exist they're there uh, but it's important, I think, to keep calling these out and for women to file claims when they do um, experience these. Tell us more about Ann Hopkins. What was the situation that led to a court case that went all the way to the Supreme Court? Thank you so much. I think this is a story that needs to be told. I never had known the case of Ann Hopkins until I started doing research for this book. But Ann Hopkins had applied to become a, uh, a partner in the very coveted uh, firm in which she uh, she worked, Price Waterhouse. Uh, she had a successful track record. Nobody was questioning her productivity and her success in basically bringing in the client bringing in the money. Where they questioned her was when she went up for partner. And the first time she was denied. Uh, and basically, she was told that, you know what, she basically needed to go to charm school, oh. that she was too manly, that she was too abrasive. She just wasn't very likable. She persisted. She went up for partner again with the same stellar work record, and she was denied again. And at that point, she sued. She said, look, this is wrong for a woman 
an executive, a strong, successful person who happens to be female, to be denied a coveted spot on the basis of stereotypes, what they thought a woman should act and sound and look like. So after a seven-year journey that went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, she won and she was ordered to become a partner at Price Waterhouse. It is an amazing story. And I hope that this book that I've written really highlights her role as a trailblazer for equal rights for everybody and the battle against stereotyping in the workforce. How much uh, is her story revealed uh, in uh the Heidi and Howard study that was conducted with business students at Columbia Business School by Frank Flynn and Cameron Anderson in 2003. The, the Heidi Howard study is a classic, and I think it really uh, uh, exemplifies what is going on here. Uh, for the listeners, the Heidi Howard study was basically a study that was done, and it's been replicated as well, but it was done to basically show that when given a resume, same content, same characteristics, educational background, successes, et cetera, but one resume is shown to research participants with the name Heidi on it, presuming that it's a female, and the other resume was shown to study participants with the name Howard, presuming that it's a male. It was when a real it, resume from Heidi Roizen, a successful real-life Silicon Venture capitalist. Exactly. And then Howard was made up. Hmm. And so when shown this, everybody agreed that both of them are competent, which, of course, you would think so. It's the same resume. But on likability, on the subjective stereotyping based on what we expect male or female leaders to be like, survey respondents reported significantly that, you know what, they just didn't like Heidi. She basically didn't know her place. She was a bit too ag you know, aggressive. He's assertive, but she's <laughs> aggressive. And abrasive. And Abrasive. Absolutely. And so on the likability factor, uh, Heidi was discounted as a leader. And that study has been replicated. And in research that's been done and anecdotes that have been held, we find that that is pretty much the same story that women leaders, when we get into the executive ranks and we lead, whether in the corporate world or in the political world, that women are just deemed just not to be very likable compared yep. to a male. They also saw her as more selfish than Howard. How was she selfish and he not selfish? I'm glad you asked that because in the book, I also outline socialization. I mean, this, these are issues when we take a look at stereotyping culture, basically from the get go, you know, young girls are taught to be, you know, sugar and spice and everything nice. You look out for others. Many of the traditional jobs that women go into are nurturing. It's caretaking, let's say nursing or teaching. We basically are doing for others. And so when they saw and evaluated Heidi and said she's selfish, the presumption was, well, she's in an executive position. Uh, she's doing it for herself. Questions and, and evaluations that aren't asked of a male. We just expect him to lead. But with the woman, we kind of expect, well, what is she leaving behind? Who is she leaving behind? And is she doing this for herself, contributing to the unlikability standard? 
How great are the disparities between the numbers of women and men in corporate and political leadership posts? Uh, they're quite significant. For example, if we take a look at it, you know, just some statistics, uh, recent statistics, overall, uh, about almost half of all women, it's about 42 percent of women uh, state and many do file claims of gender discrimination at work. Uh, if we take a look at who is hired, men are 30 percent more likely to obtain managerial roles than are women. Uh, women, if you think about it, represent a third of all MBA graduates, but only 4% of Fortune uh, 500 CEOs. In fact, it's been commented that there are more Johns running Fortune 500 companies than women who actually head one up. And when we take a look at why this happens, we find that both men and women are more likely to say that they would rather work for a male than a female, and that also both men and women are more likely to hire a male candidate over a female. So this thing about sisterhood, it doesn't really exist. We find that both men and women in our society somewhat harbor these, uh, I would say probably not obvious, a little bit subconscious stereotyping towards women executives compared to men. And uh, as bad as those statistics are, don't women of color fare even worse? Oh, absolutely. When we take a look at the numbers overall, we find that uh, it's about, what, 4% of women of color. Uh, African-American women have fared better. Latinas very uh, low uh, in terms of being able to achieve what we call that coveted executive corporate suite. Uh, we barely have statistics on Native American women, uh, but we do find that overall, uh, women of color uh, suffer not only from the the gender discrimination, but then the additional race, you know, the stereotypes. For example, we oftentimes will attribute angry, like the angry black woman to a female executive. So if one happens to be African-American, she's an executive, maybe she's leading a meeting, her voice is raised, there, we are much more likely to interpret that as she's angry. Oh, that's that stereotype of the angry black woman that becomes very difficult to disentangle and to get away from. And Latinos are oftentimes thought of as being fiery or exotic. Asian-American women are oftentimes having this dual stereotype they're supposed to be the passive, somewhat, you know, the submitting geishas. But by the same token, we hear about the stereotypes of the tiger moms and being very aggressive. And this is something that actually Ellen Powell, who actually filed a claim in Silicon Valley, she lost her case. It went to a jury trial. Uh, but it was interesting because it exposed a lot of sort of even the double standards of how even jurors were trying to understand this successful Asian-American woman operating in Silicon Valley in California, traditionally a male executive world. Because aren't most of the characteristics associated with leadership masculine-oriented, dominance, authority, assertiveness, etc.? 
Absolutely. And that's where we start taking a look at what do we expect? We find that we have very different expectations of what a man should be like versus a female. And so even when we think about how do you lead a meeting, we have found that, you know, in psychological studies, sociological studies, men are encouraged to have a more direct mode of leadership. In other words, to look into one's eyes, uh, even to be allowed to stand, to use their hands. It's a very direct form of leadership. Women are evaluated as not as likable when women directly lead, but are rather encouraged to lead indirectly. You might think about that old adage, like, you know, the way to a man's heart is through, you know, through the kitchen, you know, cook a nice bowl of spaghetti for him or something like that, a little bit more indirective, or try to make him think that it was his idea rather than your own. Those stereotypes, and it's 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 shocking to say this, but the research still supports that when these studies are conducted, we still have this differential double standard, sort of a Goldilocks dilemma, it's oftentimes been called, that women are supposed to, you know, lead and be successful like a man, but we can't, quote unquote, act like a man in getting there. And if we don't, quote unquote, act like a man, then we're considered to be passive. So it really is a conundrum that we believe leads to these disparate numbers of women not only not getting to the corporate suites, but then not staying there for very long. How has this affected you as a Latina? Well, I have seen it in my own career, both in politics and in the corporate world. You know, I give some examples in the book in the corporate world where I was, you know, at one point I was cautioned that I shouldn't use my hands, that I shouldn't stand while speaking, uh, that if I had a strong voice, I would intimidate people. Those are criticisms that are more so based on stereotyping of, you know, you know, I asked, well, should I wear pink on Wednesdays? You know, should I speak very quietly? Should I wear my pearls? Should I sit down and avert my eyes in the political arena? I have actually seen where, you know, comparing me, the majority leader uh, to the uh, the person who had been the president of the Senate, uh, a male, uh, he was considered to be fiery and a leader and, you know, a real tiger, a strong leader. I was just called bombastic. By the Sacramento I mean, Bee. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The paper of records that covers all things uh, California politics. Uh, I was also told as a woman when I first got to Sacramento that, uh, you know, as you know, we have to do fundraising. We meet with lobbyists. We meet with donors, etc. I was actually advised by a consultant, a very well-known person in Sacramento, that as a woman, I should hike up my skirt Oof. And sort of be a little bit more flirty in order to get more contributions. I mean, I could not believe what I was hearing, things that wouldn't be told of a male um, candidate or leader at that time. But you were representing a rather sophisticated area, uh, which included East Los Angeles portions of the city of Los Angeles, a major part of the San Gabriel, Gabriel Valley uh, Azusa, Baldwin Park, Covina, Duarte, El Monte, the City of Industry, Irwindale, La Puente, Monterey Park, Rosemead, West Covina, and Whittier. So did this have any impact on the people who voted for you or only on the, the people you had to work with? Well, when I ran, 
um, for example, when I ran for the Senate, I was actually told that I should stand down, that it wasn't my time, that I should let uh, there was a male assemblyman who was going to run. He had been elected to office before me. It was sort of the presumption that he would be anointed. And I was just the pesky female I needed to get out of the way. So I was actually advised to basically not be so uppity, not be arrogant stand by and let him run. And I just said, no, those days are gone. Uh, having said that, though, the voters are very much connected to my own credentials and my background. But I saw it much more so, I believe, while actually practicing under the dome in Sacramento, these differential um uh, uh, expectations and stereotypes that we, we placed upon us. If you think about the current day political arena and what everyone thinks of their politics, you know, I'm not talking about their own policies and politics, but thinking about the last presidential election, for example, we saw several women senators run, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Kamala Harris, who eventually did get uh, appointed as vice president in the past, Hillary Clinton. The thing that all of them, the same stereotype was unlikable, hmm. nasty women. Uh, they cackled, which again, too, I would just say, look, we laugh. And when we use the word cackle, that is a term that's descriptive of a witch, which rhymes with the B word that mm -hmm. I probably can't say on your show. You that can we say the B word, but don't bother. We understand. Okay, yeah. And then you look at it. I mean, Bernie Sanders, another senator. I mean, if you think about it, most of the time he was yelling, but he was considered to be affable, like very loving and kind. A little bird once went and sat on his podium. And so even though their voices were very different, uh, he was considered to be affable and likable. But the women were largely said, you're just not likable. And so we have to sort of dig deep, kind of peel away the onion to find out, aside from politics and policies, these are just looking at the characteristics. Are we that unaccustomed to seeing women performing leadership roles or political roles that typically are held by men? And if we go around the world, we'll find whether it's Angela Merkel in Germany or when Indira Gandhi was prime minister or when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister, these same kinds of labels like a dragon lady, a witch, et cetera, were oftentimes attributed to them. Uh, the first female prime minister of Canada, she once said that, you know, she was expected to lead like a man, but when she acted like a man, she found herself to be unlikable. Well, how was she to do her job? So it's not just in the U.S. This is really something that we find, I would say, globally that reflects the status and the, the, the stereotyping of women when we penetrate the political and the corporate world. There are some rich studies and anecdotes, like Carly Fiorina, for example. Wait, wait, I have to stop you for just a second because the FCC wants me to do a station break. Okay. <laughs> You're listening to Let It Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Gloria J. Romero who's written a book called Just Not That Likeable, The Price All Women Pay for Gender Bias. It is published by Post Hill Press. Continue what you were saying. Um, well, if we take a look at um, you know, the, the, the prime minister and others, we have found that it's something that is around the world and in corporate America as well. Carly Fiorina, when she talks about how she was evaluated when she was at her workplace, 
Um, she was very successful in terms of outcomes, et cetera, but people didn't like her personality. And so they said she just wasn't likable. Uh, and you find that over and over. We found that uh, the former editor of the New York Times, when she left, many of her staff revolted against her saying she's not likable. She was successful. She had just led that paper of record to a number of Pulitzer uh, Prize awards. And yet she was considered to basically... You know, she was leading like a woman, which we still find in the literature and in real life, not we are not yet ready to accept. So she was considered to be uh, uh, not good at her job because we didn't like her. Well, you weren't voted out of office. You you were uh, faced by term limits, right? Something that uh, happens in California. Correct. The last election, I did lose my last election when I ran for a statewide election. And uh, that was when I ran for superintendent of public instruction. I went up against the teachers union, which provided big money to defeat me because I believed in education reform. Now getting, and we'll get to that in a little while. Actually, you mentioned some of the, um, the world leaders, women who were world leaders. Uh, interestingly, the United States, supposedly the world's greatest democracy has never had a woman as president. In fact, uh, we only have our first vice president, woman vice president. Uh, but the women that uh, you mentioned, uh, they, they were given interesting names. Margaret Thatcher was called Attila the Hen. Golda mm-hmm. Meir was called the only man in the cabinet. Indira Gandhi was called the old witch. Angela Merkel was known as the Iron Frau. And you include an exchange in the book between Hillary Clinton and the moderator of her presidential primary debate with Barack Obama in New Hampshire in 2008. What did we learn from that? Uh, That's interesting because that was probably the first time that the concept of likability sort of resonated with me. I hadn't really thought about it before, but your listeners might remember this was one of the final debates before the New Hampshire uh, primary. I believe it was New Hampshire in which um, uh, the moderator had told Hillary Clinton, then Senator Clinton. Well, you know, you're just people don't think you're likable. And at that point, uh, Hillary had said, well, I think I'm likable. You know, I mean, I, I try, et cetera. And then then Senator Obama said, well, Hillary, you're likable enough. And that actually generated a national conversation about likability in female in, in, in male and female politics. Of course, we know that Hillary Clinton went on to lose uh, that election uh, or the nomination she ended up conceding to then Senator Obama. And subsequent to that, she lost the election to uh, Donald Trump. But we find that the question is more so raised with women. We don't really find the question being raised with men overall. We might talk about the policies, the assertiveness, leadership. We expect them to be strong. But with women, what we find in the literature is that when women raise their voices, they're considered to be abrasive. He's assertive. She's abrasive. And we don't like the cackle, the sound, the screeching, the voice sounding like, you know, what is it? You know, fingernails on a chalkboard. And so we have very differential attributions that psychologists, when we go back and take a look at it, we believe it's really based in gender, uh, gender role conditioning from the time that we are little. And and that's a problem for Vice President Kamala Harris, isn't it? Because uh, the American public doesn't seem to find her very likable. A U.S. a recent USA Today Suffolk University poll found her approval rating is at twenty eight percent, and that's even lower 
than uh, than Dick Cheney's was after um, he, he had a disastrous vice presidency. And after he shot his friend in the face yeah. with a bullet gun, quite frankly. So I think with Kamala Harris and many when Jen Psaki, uh, the press secretary, was asked about that, she did bring up questions of isms that Ms. Harris faces. And undoubtedly, Ms. Harris does face that. Now, in writing the book, racism, did, especially uh, yeah. and, and then also anti-Asian attitudes. Exactly. And I raise these issue of the isms. We have to address that. But I also point out that, that we still have to have the solid work record, like even looking at Hillary Clinton, she had a much stronger portfolio than uh, uh, arguably many would say than Kamala Harris has today. The thing that Kamala and Harris definitely has, a, a better one than Donald Trump, as far as politics were concerned. Uh, uh, no political uh, expertise at all. But one found that with uh, Kamala Harris, uh, the I think one thing that really, though, did hurt her was the dodging of going to the border when she was named borders, whether she wanted it or not. I don't know what those conversations were, but you got to follow through uh, the laugh. The laugh was very much one that, uh, you know, if I were to make recommendations to her, I would recommend you just can't. I mean, I get to that question of don't, you know, giggle, laugh. As a female leader, you just can't. You're going to be hit with this likability issue. But she absolutely has to the point that today many are talking about whether or not she can even survive and be at the top of the tick in 2024 when many presume that Joe Biden will not be running again. Michelle Obama has been called an angry black woman. She always struck me as a rather pleasant person. Absolutely. And this is one that was really I think she got the double end as well. You might recall, uh, I believe it was The New Yorker that actually ran a cover uh, image. It was actually of her and the president, Barack and Michelle Obama. And Michelle Obama was depicted as basically gun toting, you know, basically the radical extremist. This is the first lady of the United States. And there she is shown with weapons, you know, in a tire. Uh, that you would question and wonder why were they depicted in some rather racial stereotypes and then the gender stereotypes for Michelle, especially as being the angry woman. Uh, Venus Williams as well, too. You know, some of the women have been in the in the circuit have been talked about as being angry women when they speak up. Uh, or contest a ruling on the tennis court, for example. So it's something that has affected women overall and uh, men not so likely to experience this. When I was writing the book, there was the situation of uh, Ellen DeGeneres, for example. You might remember Ellen DeGeneres. Mm -hmm. There were claims. No videotape, to my knowledge, uh, was brought forth. But Ellen DeGeneres was told, was said that she was mean. You know, she she was not nice. She was strong, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. In the meantime, there was Tom Cruise on which there was was videotape sound of Mr. Mission Impossible screaming at his staff. And yet he is the hero because he allegedly is looking out for the welfare of his workplace. It was related to whether or not somebody should have been wearing a mask. But he's Mr. Mission Impossible. It's OK for him to yell and scream. Hmm. But Ellen DeGeneres, God forbid, should she raise her voice and we have no videotape of it. She's just not likable, but he's a hero. So that was one, too, that even, you know, in Hollywood, which, of course, perpetuates many of these stereotypes, we experience it there as well. Do negative stereotypes of women in power hurt all women, regardless of their profession, occupation, position or 
career aspirations? Absolutely. Because one of them might be, uh, on one hand, we see the numbers, just the disparity. And uh, there can be sort of a chilling factor, like, you know, don't go into that field. You know, you're, you're going to have to give up too much. Uh, the other issue becomes also in salary negotiations. We know that when we enter the workforce, sort of your entry salary, it becomes a base from which you continue to grow. So that becomes very important if we get stalled. Uh, many women will still say that they are mentored by other women opening the doors for them. So it becomes very important, even if one is not in the executive suite or not in the political arena, we find that these stereotypes continue to affect all women, whether or not we ever uh, seek to enter the corporate arena or the political world as well. And you're right about how Hollywood perpetuates many of the stereotypes. Oh, this was a fun uh, area that I wrote about. Gina Davis, actually, the uh, actress uh, uh, who has actually has an entire project that she's initiated looking at not only women uh, of color, but as we age, older women become even less likable. And as women age, and think about it, when we start moving into executive positions, women, for the most part, are older. You know, we are, you know, we're probably not, you know, in our 20s, maybe not even in our 30s. We are older. And so oftentimes women are, are, as we age and we are in the executive positions, not only are we told that we scream or we're loud or we talk with our hands, but you know, those are those menopausal women. So our own biology gets used against us. So those women begin to face age as well. That's something in my career that I have faced as well, that the allegation somehow being that as we age, somehow our hormones take control. Things that you wouldn't think about saying to a male per se, but for a woman, oh, it's got to be her hormones. She's just off today. You know, it's a mood swing. And those are things that I've actually heard in my career as well. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Yes, Gloria J. Romero, the former California State Majority Leader, who's uh, written a book called Just Not That Likable, The Price All Women Pay for Gender Bias. It is published by, uh, now I'm losing that. Uh, your publisher uh, is, uh, oh yeah, Post Hill Press. Right. Now, um, I mentioned the, the stereotypes of, of Hollywood. You write girls are socialized at an early age to play nice. Right. And if we think about that old adage, sugar and spice, everything nice. Um, it's interesting because when I was a university professor teaching uh, in the psychology department, I usually had the course on what we call gender studies, sex and gender. And so we begin to find from the studies overall that even parents, once we start, we know perhaps that we're going to have a child, we're going to raise it. We start decorating the nursery. We start painting. We start selecting names. We start selecting 
toys. And right from the very beginning, and, and many will argue that the most important words in a person's life are those words that are pronounced at birth. It's a boy. It's a girl. Because right from the mm. get-go, then, we start having these attributions. Research studies have even found that if it's a girl infant, a girl child, that parents are less likely to let that infant crawl away farther from them than a boy infant. We tend to cuddle girls more so, almost looking at the vulnerability. Girls are oftentimes encouraged to be quiet. When we take a look at the classroom studies, and it's not that teachers are being nefarious or even probably even cognizant of what they're doing, but we continue to find different patterns of reinforcement for boys to succeed in the classroom and girls to essentially be silenced. Uh, even if we take a look at the internet, video games, you know, movies that we watch, uh, think about all the Disney movies that we've probably grown up with. We have very different imagery. And one of the big things, and, you know, and I grew up watching all the Disney movies, too. So I'm not telling people don't watch it, of course, but be cognizant that to a large extent, we're selling the dream of becoming a princess mm. and finding the prince. Even in the modern uh, movies, though, we have found that the princesses now are being a little bit defiant. They're a little bit of rebels. They're brave and they take on and they carry spears and they go hunting. But ultimately, we're still looking at traditional standards of beauty. What do they look like? Beauty becomes something very, very important. And that becomes part of the attribute that women are evaluated by how we look, how we dress, our mannerisms, our beauty that gets factored into likability. So all of these factors come into play. And you tell a story of being asked about which toy you wanted with your Happy Meal at McDonald's, whether you wanted a boy toy or a girl toy. This was one that my daughter and I, we still laugh about. Uh, she was little. Uh, I think I had had a hard day at the university. We drove through McDonald's to just get a Happy Meal. So we pull up uh, and order the cheeseburger Happy Meal. And the voice on the intercom says, do you want a boy toy or a girl toy? Now, remember, I had just finished teaching courses on you know, gender studies. And so I remember asking, well, what difference does it make? What is the boy toy? What's the girl toy? They would not tell me, would not tell me what it is. And they just said, well, what is your child? Is it a boy or is it a girl? And I had said, well, what difference does it make? Maybe my child wants to choose the toy on the basis of the toy rather than her own gender. They refused. I had to end up pulling the car out of the fast food lane, go in and walk out with ultimately the toy of, of her choice. And honestly, I don't even remember what she ended up choosing. But something like that where we we prescribe what girls are supposed to play with. I used to, when I was teaching at the university, I used to do a, a field trip. We called it a field trip. And we would go to the, the then Toys R Us. But you can go to any toy store, department store, look at the aisles. And very clearly, we have what we call the pink section, the blue section, uh, where we find where toys are stored. And there are questions about, you know, who, what the expectations are. It's very interesting, even in these days when fathers have been given greater rights, you know, paternity rights and fatherhood are going to court. And I support the parents, the, the father's rights movement as well. But if you go into the toy stores, we still find that there are no baby dolls located in what we call the blue section. They're all in the girls section, you know, the house cleaning, the dishwashing, all of that G.I. Joe. 
is in the boy section. G.I. Joe will never be found in a pink section because G.I. Joe is not a doll. He is an action figure, whereas Ken, you know, the Barbie and Ken duo, Ken is not considered an action figure. He basically is a doll. He's essentially arm candy for for, uh, Barbie. And the, the messaging for little girls is basically you know, sort of living vicariously through Barbie, we're supposed to find our kin. So you have this very different imagery that's there. You find the war toys, you find the camouflage, the, you know, the the blacks, the browns, the very, you know, more dark colors. You find more of the pastels and the pinks in the girls section. And I think it's sad in a time when we encourage parenting for all that uh, we still find baby dolls not considered to be appropriate for little boys to play with. What would you like teachers of uh, the early grades in school to get out of this book? What could they do to uh, to change things a bit? Or is it even possible because they're, they're living within this society? Well, I think it is possible, although it is always choices. Like, for example, when I pulled out of the fast food lane, they said, look, it's a little stupid plastic toy. But it's the messaging. Like, I shouldn't be forced just on the basis of one's skin color. One might, one might ask, imagine if I was told you've got to drink from this water fountain because you're black and you're white. We wouldn't accept that. So we shouldn't accept. Not anymore, anyway. Either. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I, I think it's important for teachers. You know, teachers uh, have spent a great deal of time with our children once they go into the classroom uh, setting. But to be cognizant of words we use with them, uh, the times in which we allow girls to speak, it's uh, studies have found that girls are much more likely to be interrupted in a classroom. When boys are interrupted, they're much more likely to be allowed to speak up and continue. Once a girl is interrupted, she's more likely to remain silent. And again, these are not nefarious and intentional, but it's sort of the way in which girls have been taught to be silenced overall. So I think it's important to think about that. And as teachers, to think about how we teach, how we interact interact with boys and girls. Um, so my hope would be that not only for teachers, but in workplaces, that people will think about you know that term we use, the implicit bias. We're not cognizant of such. And when we are in a workforce and we see these disparities to speak up. I give a number of recommendations in the book as to what we can do in our own workplaces to begin to challenge this, uh, you know, this uh, uh, double standard. I call it the Goldilocks dilemma as well, because women who are going into executive positions, we have to decide, well, how much of a quote unquote of a man can I be like when I'm supposed to be doing a job that others think only men can do. But when I do it successfully, I am devalued because I'm told that I'm not acting feminine enough. You know, people call it the Goldilocks dilemma. So I give a number of recommendations. Well, you say being the boss means sometimes being bossy, obviously. So uh, women should get over the need to be like sometimes. Exactly. Tina Fey, when she wrote her book, she just said, yeah, sometimes being the boss means you have to be bossy and it's okay to be bossy. I'm not saying that you go out and you beat somebody or, you know, do anything, you know, illegal, of course, but it's okay for a woman to raise her voice. It doesn't mean that she's a witch and that word that rhymes with it. But uh, I also think, too, that in this era of social media, I mean, think about it, Twitter and Facebook, we sort of live on how many likes we get. And so that kind of ties into it. And my first piece of advice to women is just get over the need to be liked. 
It's okay to be successful. And we should expect that when we are successful, still, we're going to get some of these criticisms from both men and women. Because I want to be very clear that women do this as we incorporate the same issues when we look at other uh, men and women. And as women and men, we are both more likely to say we'd rather work for a male than for a female, even with the same credentials. So I think it's important for teachers and others in the workforce for women to get over the need to be liked, be successful. I also think it's important for us to uh, be evaluated on our outputs, on our outcomes, to really have a record, to be judged and evaluated on the records of accomplishment, not necessarily how quote unquote likable we are, because likability is subjective. Well, that didn't work for Heidi. Exactly, exactly. And so it's got to be one where we have some objective criteria. There are also recommendations that when we hire, we should consider doing what we call blind uh, uh, applications so that we see Heidi and Howard, but we don't know that it's Heidi and Howard. Here's the resume. Evaluate the resume and then we can go from there, especially when first trying to get in the door. I also think it's very important to collect data and to report data so that we can see progress. And I think it's very important when businesses are sued on the basis of of, uh, gender discrimination, that those statistics and numbers uh, should be published. I mean, we we should know about the number of cases. Uh, A lot of women will decide because it's very very costly, like Ann Hopkins, when she took her battle, she went all the way to the Supreme Court. It took seven years and it took her marriage with her as well. I mean, it was a very difficult time professionally and personally. She was the trailblazer. She was the first one. Uh, And she was just said she was unlikable every step of the way. But she went all the way to the Supreme Court. She had the resources to be able to do that. Many women do not have that. And so some will write a blog. Others will file with, you know, fair employment and housing departments. Others might do settlements, go into arbitration. I do call for a reform of what we call these non-disclosure agreements, because I point out in the book that when one signs, and there's reasons for one to sign an NDA, as they're known, but it also means that you get silence. So it's kind of think about it. It's almost like a rape survivor. You, you get a settlement, but you're never able to talk to even your own family about what happened to you. So those are things that need to be reevaluated. Here in California, Senator Connie Leva has done some really important work in challenging these in California, but there's much more work that has to do. And I would encourage all state legislatures to look at these and to really begin to do away with these NDAs. What would you like men in leadership to get from reading your book? Um, I think it's important to understand our role in it because women can't just be the gender police. Well, we're not the ones who can always call it out. I think there's a role for everybody here because, you know, when we have leadership, women lead not just for other women, but women lead for all. So I think it's very important for males and females to stand up. And as I point out, remember, It's not as though men are the bad guys because women hold these same stereotypes when we judge women uh, negatively based on these false or these old stereotypes that we should put away. So it's really one where I think it's important for both men and women to understand, to point these out, to look for supports and mentorship 
but really more than anything to support, to not victim shame. When we talk about women who are filing claims or stepping forward to be supportive and understanding. So, you know, women don't just lead for the women in the organization. They lead for everyone. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Gloria J. Romero. Her book, Just Not That Likeable, The Price All Women Pay for Gender Bias, published by Post Hill Press. Uh, This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Can we talk a bit about some of your politics that are not in the book? Sure. Should I be surprised that although you're a Democrat, you support the privatization of public schools? Well, I don't support the privatization of public schools. What I what I support is parental school choice. Uh, what I believe is that the money should not be funding systems. Money should be funding students. So what is meant by that is that money should go with the child. Uh, rather than simply left into a a school and then it stays there irrespective. So, for example, I support charter schools. Charter schools are public schools in California. They're not private. And this becomes a parent choice. The reason that I've supported charter schools in California is because when I was in the legislature, I not only was the chair of the education committee, I was also the chair of the prison committee. And so I've spent more time, I've probably been in every prison in California for nothing that I've done. okay. but I've probably been in every prison in California. And what struck me way back then is uh, the uh, the the disparity of, of people, men of color in particular, women of color who are incarcerated. Seventy percent of our incarcerated uh, adults do not have a high school diploma. So I argued if we don't educate, we will incarcerate. So fast forward, what does this mean for schools? I started looking at the trends, where are the resources? There's something that we call the dance of the lemons because it becomes very difficult to be able to uh, dismiss a teacher on the basis of sexual misconduct or for a sexual offense or for incompetence in teaching. It's very difficult to dismiss. So what happens contractually is oftentimes the poorer performing teachers get sent to a uh, uh, higher poverty neighborhoods where parents are less likely to complain. And then you begin to see that trajectory of a differential outcome of education. So those are, and even when the state knows that these schools are dropout factories for all intents and purposes, we still tell the parents, that's your zip code. You got to stay there no matter what. Now, the rich rich get to go wherever they want to go. And I support that. That's fine. But I want to be able to make it so that parents who are poor also have, they shouldn't be bound by zip code. So that's why I say, let's give the money to parents to decide where they wish to go, including which public school they wish to attend. I read and I found this surprising that in the 2021 California gubernatorial recall election, you endorsed Larry Elder over Governor Gavin Newsom. Hasn't Elder contended that, I'm quoting, women know less than men about political issues, economics and current events? And he said that the women who took part in the 2017 Women's March were obese, that PMS stands for punish my spouse. He's endorsed pregnancy discrimination by employers, claimed that statistics about domestic violence against women are exaggerated to promote feminism, and said that Democrats achieve more success among women voters because they have, because they have emotionally driven but often unsound policies. 
You know, I don't agree with everything that Larry Elder has said, and these are comments that are attributed to him, some of which I think are taken out of context. But as I made clear when I um, endorsed him, I was not going to go with Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom, you know, year after year, governor after governor, decade after gov- uh, governor, we continue to lock. And this is especially black and brown kids, kids from South Central, kids from East L.A., kids from the Central Valley in dropout factories. To me, education is the civil rights issue of our time. And I finally just said I'm on strike. Governor Newsom is also the same governor who shut down our schools, yet he sent his kids to a private school. He told every other parent, you got to wear masks, yet his kids ran around maskless. So to me, I said, look, I am going to call a general strike and I am going to refuse to support the Democratic nominee. And I'm a Democrat, but I've been battling this issue with fellow Democrats who are too beholden to the teachers union because of the power of money that comes from their war chest. And so I just said, no, on behalf of mostly black and brown kids as a civil rights fight, I'm not going to go with somebody who opposes uh, school choice. And I went with uh, the um, the one that I believed had the strongest stance on school choice. So, yes, I endorse him. I, I'm glad of that. It got quite a bit of attention. There's a lot of discussion about the need for alternatives. But I do think it's it takes courage, I think, for us to think outside the party line. You know, I, I'm a Democrat, I but I at this point, I'm really uh, appalled at so much in my party where I think the party is leaving so many others. And we're seeing that in recent elections, especially with Latinos who understand that education, it's what lifts us out of poverty. And if we won't fight on school choice and school quality, we're never going to succeed in this society. So it's something that increasingly Latinos are beginning to buck the Democratic Party. Uh, and I'm one of them just saying, as a Democrat, give me Democrats who will stand up for choice. Well, it's often a matter of, of voting for the lesser of the two evils. Uh, I, I don't know what your position on Roe v. Wade is, but uh, Larry Elder believes that it it was one of the worst decisions that the Supreme Court ever handed down. And now I guess we may have that reverse. But uh, in just a few minutes that we have available to us, is there anything else that you want to address that you talk about in your book that I haven't asked you about? Well, I think you've been uh, very comprehensive. I would just encourage folks to read it. This is actually the first book that's been written cover to cover on this topic of likability. I want to give a shout out to uh, Cheryl Sandberg, of course, in her groundbreaking book, Lean In. She talks about likability in one chapter. And I remember reading that chapter and being very struck by it because I had seen this in my career. So what I did was I started with her chapter and then I branched out to cover the entire book on this topic. So the book is available. You can order it in your bookstores. You can go to amazon.com and order the book. It's also available um, as an audio book as well. You can get it on your Kindle or you can get it hardcover. It's it's based in research. I, I document it's very footnoted throughout the volume, but I think it's a fun read as well. And I think you can laugh, you can look at it. There's anecdotes that are told, but there's the research. And I, when I've been talking with some of my colleagues, especially female colleagues, many of them will say, Gloria, this happened to me. Gloria, somebody told me this. So I am finding that women that I speak with 
who are in the corporate sector as well have said that happened to me as well. So I think you can find yourself in this book. So I encourage you to take a look at it. And I'm very thankful to Post Hill Press. It's a small press uh, and one that took a chance to say, let me get this in. Let's get this uh, writer and go ahead and tell a story. And to me, more than anything, telling the story of Ann Hopkins is one that I hope people we should know her name. We know Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, we know some of the leaders that have stood up and stood out. And I would hope that people know Ann Hopkins' name, know her story. And really, at a time when nobody stood up on these issues, she stood up and went all the way to the Supreme Court to win a case. And the rest of us now just have to fight to use the law that she made, uh, uh, that she enabled us to be able to to use. Gloria J. Romero is the first woman to serve as majority leader in the California Senate. She's now a professor emeritus at California State University. Uh, she uh, has a PhD in psychology, and we've been discussing her book, Just Not That Likable, The Price All Women Pay for Gender Bias. It is published by Post Hill Press. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you so much. And to all your listeners, thank you. And I hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving and look forward to a time of peace in the holiday season before us. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. If you would like to hear more about one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Today is Giving Tuesday. I'm sure you've heard a lot about that already. Well, we're asking everyone who's able to to go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 212-209-2950 right now to help keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online, as I said, to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. That's 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content. Unlike most public radio stations, WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. So if you're the kind of listener who tunes in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large or has just discovered our unique content, we need you to do your part right now with a tax-deductible contribution uh, to keep this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's entirely listener-sponsored on the air. And I'm sure, you, as you can understand, we need your help now more than ever because all of all the difficulties of the past year. My great thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support WBAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and I, I hope that you will join them. And I hope you'll join us again tomorrow when industrial hygienist Monona Russell, who's a regular contributor to the show, will take your calls on how to protect yourself from the growing number of COVID variants during this holiday season. And we will be taking your calls. We'll see you then. <laughs>